Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Good morning, Voxers. Hello, Vox. How are you guys? Where do you want this? This one. Right here? Yeah. It is the Bonnie and Ronnie Show. <laughs> Kidding. It's only Bonnie, not me. Uh, I'm only here to answer a couple questions and uh, talk about a little bit about uh, about Vox. So welcome if it's your first time, never <laughs> been here before. Uh, we're so glad you chose to be with us. Um, Vox is kind of a unique space in that that's exactly it. We are here to create space for people who are navigating this journey of spirituality and God and Jesus and church and all that sort of stuff. And so um, this is a place where we really believe that it's our, our role to create space for people to do that in a healthy way, in a safe place, uh, but also to engage the world around us and not to be at war with it, not to be at war with culture, but actually to serve the world that we that we live in and, and love the way that Jesus loved it. So uh, that's a little bit about us. Um, we have uh, a little bit about the service. We'll have some teaching, some music. Uh, we do open communion, in case you're not familiar with what that is. It's that everybody's welcome to the table with Jesus. We believe mm-hmm. that's a profound experience that people um, have a gift to be able to come and do that. So no matter what you've thought you've heard, what people have told you, uh, this place, we, we invite everyone to come and partake. We also have uh, community pastors who will be up front to pray with you if you need that as well. Uh, so that's a part of the service and you'll experience that towards the end. Uh, One of the other things that we do a part of this community, which I love, is we answer questions. And uh, from time to time, questions will come in uh, that are really, really difficult and heavily nuanced and require a lot of thought, which is why we brought Bonnie here, because I can't do that. So um, (laughs) the question that came in last week I shared with you, uh, I think we have it. It's out of Exodus 20. I think this is it. Yes. Okay. Uh, I was listening to an interview by Larry King on YouTube about heaven. Oh, this is not the right one. Let's get Let's go to the next one. Next question. Uh, I found this verse. Oh, uh, is this one? I don't think this oh, is it. Oh, I can do this one. You want to do this one now? Yeah. Okay, okay. go for it. Hey, Vox. Um, I found this verse. The verse he's talking about is in, um, we should look it up. Yeah, Proverbs 16, uh, verse 4. Um, you want to read the question while I find Proverbs? Yeah. I found this verse and it left me wondering, why would our God plan a day for the wicked to do evil to us? We always say he is a good God, and he is, and that he sometimes tests us like he did with Job, but Satan had to ask God to do evil to him. So why would our God plan a day for evil to happen? Um, okay, so it's in Proverbs 16, 4, and the verse says, the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Um, so the first thing is that we always want to pay attention to the genre of the book that we're reading. So uh, Proverbs is poetry. So a lot of the stuff in there is um, hyperbole or it has not necessarily a straight literal meaning, um, but a lot of times they're, they're writing it in poems. So as you would write a poem now and use words or phrases that you wouldn't use if I'm telling a narrative, the same thing is true here. So um, when he says, the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. He, um, the wicked here refers to people that um, don't accept who God is and don't believe in him. It is not saying that God created wicked people. It's saying God creates everybody and then they have their own free will. Some people will choose to follow and choose to believe and some people won't. The people that won't, for the uh, author here, those are the wicked people. And so it says, um, even the people that don't follow for a day of disaster. And the day of disaster isn't that the wicked people are going to attack 
non-wicked people, it's actually talking about the day of judgment. So it's saying, it's not saying like, hey, how God planned uh, bad people to hurt everyone else. The verse is actually saying there are people that don't follow, and for them, there is a day of judgment. It's good. Awesome. Go. All right, let's go to the next question. Question three. Okay, here we go. This is the one. Please explain how God can say not to kill in Exodus 20. I believe that is uh, 10 commandments, thou shalt not kill. And then shortly thereafter tells the Israelites to kill every man, woman, and child. Tough question. Um, and yes, that's, a, that's, a, that's one that a lot of people have. That's one that like when I read it, I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to just go out there and answer a question because I need to think about this a little bit more. So I'm going to start with this first. Um, when we are reading scripture, it would, it would do us a lot of justice to understand the context in which it was written and the time and the place. And so uh, a lot of damage has been done, I think, over the last several hundred years because of literal readings of scripture. Um, and I think that doesn't do justice to what scripture actually is and what it was meant to be. So I think it's important for us to understand it. The second thing we have to understand is that in our westernized way of thinking, and this isn't a knock on us, okay? I don't want you to think like I'm just making fun of westernized thinking because because I'm a part of that. But westernized dominance and thinking has taught us that when we read something, um, it needs to be right and true for us so that we can prove our point. Uh, the other part of that is in our westernized thinking, when we talk about battle and militarization, we understand it differently than the Bible was written for people, especially specifically the Israelites. Um, you probably, I think I've said this before, um, but one author says that the part of the reason why we have a hard time understanding the New Testament is because we are Rome. Um, we are the dominant power in the world. We are the dominant militarized force in the world, which is what Rome was. And there was a marginalized group of people who started in the New Testament, who are have the, the, the boot of the empire on their neck. And so the Bible is written from that perspective, and that's hard for us to understand. And so this question really comes from this perspective of uh, bloodthirsty, militarized domination of God going there and just wiping people out and kicking people's butt. That's, that's sort of the caricaturization of what you're reading when you read scripture today through these eyes. Now, I get that. I understand that because that's how I sometimes read it. And I have to stop for a second and go, okay, this is not what's actually happening in the text. Uh, there's a great book and a good resource that I'm going to recommend to you. So if you want to write this down, you can. It was, it was recommended to me by Will, um, and it's called uh, Skeleton in God's Closet. And it gives a lot of perspective on uh, the holy war idea that God would go and conquer and dominate nations. Um, so if you want that, you can read that. It's a good book. And again, let me just preface this by saying, uh, as we answer questions, we're not giving you the answers. We're giving you specific perspective on an answer, a way to think about something differently than maybe you've heard it before. So one of the things that we have to think about is this. Um, when, uh, when God is patient with nations, we don't often understand that. So one of the things is uh, Israel defeats Canaan, who's inhabiting the land, right? And so we see that and we go, oh my gosh, God just kicks out this nation, he destroys them and utterly destroys them and he kills all the women and children and how, how awful is that? Well, here's a couple things. First, Israel was at 400 years in Egypt. They were slaves, they were mistreated, they were marginalized. They were the little guy, they're getting dominated. And in that 400 years, there's a reason why they waited that long. God was being patient with the land of Canaan. Uh, this, this nation was a, a nation that was dominating and kicking other people's butts, like they were the bloodthirsty nation that was killing and hurting people. That's what they were doing. And, and so God is actually being patient with them, saying, okay, I'm gonna give you time. I'm gonna give you time to get it together and get it together, and they don't. And so God takes Israel from, from Egypt and moves them into this place. Now, the second thing we have to understand is when you read passages like they utterly destroyed everyone, they killed all the people in the land, 
Uh, this is the equivalent of uh, biblical trash talk. Okay, when you uh, watched the Dodger game last night, they literally got destroyed by Boston, right? And that hurts me to say, because I'm a Dodger fan. Uh, they didn't literally get destroyed. They didn't get wiped from the earth. Uh, it's, it's trash talk. It's saying, like, we, we, we handily won that battle. And so when you're reading some of the stuff in Scripture, it's, it's, it's battle rhetoric. It's a way of boasting of what you've done. And the people and the time that it was written would have understood that to be hyperbole. They would have understood that this isn't literally them killing everybody and wiping them off the face of the earth. Because when you read later on in the passages, you'll see that there are still those people from those tribes that are still in existence. It's not that the writers were trying to be, uh, they were trying to lie or they were trying to, you know, uh, hide the truth. They were just boasting. This is what was done. This is what everybody did. And so they were writing it in hyperbole and the readers would have understood that. The third thing that's important to understand um, a lot of times when, uh, when cities are destroyed, these are military outposts. These aren't civilians. Um, a perfect example is Jericho. Uh, you've all heard the story of Jericho, right? Uh, Jericho and Ai get destroyed. God sends them over there. They do this little thing around the, the, the city and the walls fall and they utterly destroy them. Well, first of all, modern archaeology has told us that uh, the city of Jericho and Ai probably only had about 120 to 200 people in it probably a little different than what you thought in your mind. And they were all military. Everybody there was military. It was a military outpost. And so when God goes in there and sends Israel in there, this is a military battle. This isn't civilians being destroyed or killed or wiped out. Um, so it's important to understand a little bit of that. It's more nuanced. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we talked a little bit about it, and you have another perspective on some of that as well. Yeah. So I'm going to let Bonnie talk about her, persp her perspective on that as well. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> along with what Ronnie said, it's, it's neat to also go and then is that um, a lot of the language that's being used there too is um, symbolically true for our spiritual life. So um, if you were to take something in your life, you and I, but then also where the book was written to the Israelites, if you were to take something in your life that was like, and you wanted to dedicate it to God so that he could destroy it and rebuild it, then this is the type of language you would also use. So that may be um, pride, or it might be um, disobedience, or it might be arrogance, whatever it is, symbolically it's saying the, um, whatever these people represented, who they were and what they did to the Israelites, they're just saying, we don't want that to be a part of who we are. So we want those characteristics to be wiped out and to be destroyed. And what's interesting is that now, um, even today, uh, like the Jewish community reads it and that's how they read it in total symbolic nature of what is it in me that needs to be wiped out, that needs to be destroyed? Um, how can I dedicate that to God and let him deal with it and then rebuild it into something new? That's good. Yeah, so again, I know that's a big heady question and it's super heavily nuanced and I can't answer all of it in totality. If you have more questions, you can send them in. We'd love to answer them. You can come talk to me afterwards. We can continue to have conversations about it. But uh, I'm gonna be done and I'm gonna let Bonnie do her thing. So, all right. Thank you, Ronnie. You guys, um, let's give a round of applause for Ronnie and the teachers here. I um, I'm in Austin, but we um, I frequently watch Sundays, and I'm just always amazed by what a gift everyone here has and everyone who watches on the internet because you have this set of teachers that all thinks about things really differently, and for me, I'm really challenged, and so um, I just want you to know they do such a good job of preparing and being really thoughtful about what they say and how they say it, so that's unique. Um, I have a heavy heart today, um, and I want to start with just having a moment of silence for our um, brothers and sisters in Pittsburgh. 
if you haven't um, watched the news, there was um, an active shooter in a synagogue yesterday in Pittsburgh, and he has been detained now, but he recently had come forward and saying a lot of um, anti-Semitic language and rhetoric, and he walked into a synagogue, and he um, opened fire, and on his way out, he encountered policemen, and he um, wounded them too. I think, I haven't looked at it recently, but I think 11 are dead, and four are in critical condition, and so um, I would just like it if we could just take a minute and bow our heads and just have a moment of silence. I'll close that moment of silence in prayer, and we'll um, continue on. Father, we ask that you would be with the people um, of Pittsburgh. We ask that you would be with the Jewish community there and all throughout the world. We ask that you'd be with all the faith communities, God, as um, people um, gather to pray, gather to worship, and um, maybe feel fear this morning. God, I I ask first that you'd be near the brokenhearted that you would um, heal wounds, that you would um, bring your presence where there is grieving, that you would bring people around this community. I also pray um, against the uh, fear that is instilled and um, so many people as they gather to worship this morning, that your peace would um, transcend that and that um, you would bring healing. I also pray for the man who um, opened fire. God, that you would um, pierce his heart, that you would bring uh, forgiveness and reconciliation to this whole situation and to um, the ongoing problem of the world of hate and um, that that leads to such sorrow and, and lives being taken from us. May you give us wisdom about how we can play a part in bringing your reconciliation here. In Jesus' name, amen. So when things like this happen, um, inevitably we all know what happens next, right? There'll be lots of um, political discussions about, in this case, gun laws, right? And so if you have and experience on your social media like I do, you'll go on and you will see tons of different posts for, against, why, why not, who should we vote for, who you shouldn't vote for. And um, we will engage in discussions about those things. I was just reading a book and it said that we are actually the most connected people that we've ever have been, and we're also the most lonely. That actually, Studies now show that above stroke and obesity, the number one cause of death is loneliness. And we don't always think we're lonely because we spend a lot of time on the internet talking to other people on the internet about these things that really do matter. And we feel like we're playing a part. 
So today's topic, we're reading in Acts 15, and I think it's, I think it's very, very timely um, because they're having a debate in Acts 15 about um, people who are Gentiles who are coming to be Christians and if or not, whether or not they should be circumcised. So circumcision started in Genesis 17. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and then in order to seal the covenant, Abraham becomes circumcised. And it is a permanent mark on Abraham's body to remind him of the promises and the covenant that he has with God. And so as Abraham is journeying through his life and his faith ebbs and flows, just as all of ours do, and he comes across a situation that he doesn't understand, he's upset, whatever it may be, he can remember the covenant that God made with him. And so it, st- it became a part of Mosaic law and they started doing it as a ritual. And actually, in um, historically speaking, the Israelites were the only people to do circumcision when um, an in- a child was a baby. They did it eight days after the baby was born and everyone else did it like when they were older, like 13 or so. And, um, and so they, they started doing this as a ritual to uh, pass down from generation to generation as a sign of being set apart by God. But also it became almost a criteria for their salvation. And so um, like in the book of Exodus 12, it tells us that non-Israelites could celebrate Passover, but first they had to be circumcised. So it was a big, big deal. And in fact, you could be excommunicated if you weren't circumcised and if you refused to be because it was a mark of salvation. It was a big deal. Think about marks of salvation that you have, what you believe. Communion, Uh, things that you are like, no, this is a pillar of the faith. You have to believe X, Y, and Z to be saved. That's what circumcision was. And so we find ourselves in Acts 15, and you've got two different groups. Okay, you have the conservative Jewish Christians who think that all Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to become part of the tribe. And then you have a group of people that say, no, we don't need to be circumcised. And instead, the Holy Spirit's moving differently and has shown us that it's just through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so you have these two groups that are actually a part of one big group that have two different opinions on a really big issue. Now the problem that they're facing is twofold. The first one is you have a group of people who have found security in their salvation based on a set of rites, rituals, and passages. They have all these things they have to do, right? Circumcision being one of them and maybe even being of chief importance. But you also have uh, food laws, you have cleanliness laws, you have purity laws. So you have a group of people who have held on to this for generation after generation after generation. It is a sign of the promise that you are saved, of God saying, I see you, you are my people, and I am your God. And so you have them, and they are being told that that's just no longer relevant. So put yourself, let's put ourselves in their shoes for a second. How does that feel? How are they feeling? I'm literally asking you so that you respond to me. (laughs) 
how do you feel? If, if you had something, which we do, think of something you have in your faith that you hold dearly, that you believe this is a mark of salvation, this is what tells me I am saved. And then you have one of your fellow Christians come along and say, oh no, that's actually not relevant anymore. And here's, here's, here's why, how, how do you feel? Upset, betrayed, defensive, totally. Angry, yeah, right? Like, you can't come in and take that from me. How else? Confused, what was that one? I said, I probably will feel like, who do you think you are? Exactly, right? You can't come in here and tell me what to do. And um, of course they do, of course they do. They like literally have built their faith on this. Of course they feel that way, there's no fault to them. Your second problem though, is that they also feel worried. Because if you are a Jewish Christian and you follow a bunch of rules, those rules keep you clean according to your heritage. And so you're actually worried because you can't fellowship with people that don't follow those same rules. So they're saying like they have to be circumcised because I basically can't eat dinner with them. Like, I make people wash their hands when they eat dinner at my house, but to each their own, I guess. Um, but they're saying, like, we, we're not going to be able to have fellowship with them if they're not circumcised, because if they come in here not circumcised, I am at risk for defilement. And I need to watch out for me. I don't want to be defiled. I don't want to be unclean. So we can't have fellowship with them. And that's heartbreaking for both communities. But if you are a Gentile and you hear that, and one of your fellow members of your church says to you, look like I can't eat dinner with you because you won't do this. Because this isn't who you are. And it's no fault of your own. You just met Jesus. You didn't grow up in the same place they did. You didn't know. And someone says, I'm sorry, we, we actually can't be in community. How do you feel? I'm asking you again. How do you feel? You're not welcome here. Just based on who you are, where you grew up, what you were born, you can't, you're not welcome here. Isolated. Isolated. Yeah. Rejected. Angry. Rejected. Ripped off. Ripped off. Yeah. Right? So this is such an emotionally charged passage because you have these two groups of people and to no fault of their own, this is just how they've always known life and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be in this thing together? And so it's like this passage actually is timely for us, right? Because we have all of these huge ideas we have to make. In two weeks, it's midterm elections, and I'm not gonna get up here and be political with you, but I'm also gonna tell you that all of us are talking about all these ideas, and we are all saying, hey, we have a say in this. Now that can be very small at our kitchen tables, and it could be very big the way you vote, you choose. But we are always talking about these types of things and how things should go down. And so this passage is a debate about uh, circumcision or not circumcision, but it also shows us how we should be conducting ourselves how it is that we can have actual discussions and how we should be having them. And the reason why it matters is because this is actually a huge turning point in the book of Acts. It's literally in the middle of Acts, but it also is a turning point because they know that what they decide about circumcision and how they decide it will change the course 
of Christianity going forward. Because what they decide and how they decide will be a picture of Jesus that the future Gentiles meet. So it makes a big, big difference. And I wanna propose that what we decide and how we decide, probably more importantly, how we go about these types of decisions and conversations is also a turning point for us. It is literally the face of Jesus that some people will meet. So let's dive in, Acts 15. I also wanna say, I just wanna say something, I felt like there's like a heavy beginning. Um, Number one, if you don't know what circumcision is, there's nothing I can do for you. You'll just have to ask Ronnie or Andy. (laughs) Um, Or Will. Um, Number two, I have this thing where I read a lot of uh, commentaries and books like all the time and then what happens is I end up using biblical language in non-biblical experiences. So um, like I went to Trader Joe's and they had this turkey we bought and then they no longer had the turkey and then they brought the turkey back. And I said to my husband, oh my gosh, look, they resurrected that turkey. And he's like, (laughs) you can just say they sell it again. So that happens to me from time to time. And um, I just couldn't tell this passage without telling you this story. Uh, When we had our son, the doctor who delivered us came in to the hospital and she said, I'm going to bring in the doctor uh, who is going to tell you about circumcision and she'll tell you about it and you can decide what you want to do and whatever. I'm like, great. So she comes in, the doctor comes in, she's this small woman, she's got black hair, um, very nice, very, very young. and she gives us a spiel and she leaves. And my husband turns to me and he was like, what in the world? Like what? And I'm like, what? And he's like, your face, the whole time she was talking, you just were staring at her like she was a ghost. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, but that really took me off guard because I thought it was like gonna be Moses or at least a rabbi. And it wasn't. And he was like, you gotta read other things. Okay. All right, Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea, first one. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So Antioch is a church mostly of Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas are kind of the leaders of it. And some Jewish Christians were coming down and saying, like, hey, just so you know, you're not saved unless you're circumcised. So this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Of course it did. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So Paul and Barnabas say, this is not a problem just for Antioch. This is actually a problem for all of us. This is a topic that deserves that we discuss it as a whole church. Like we can't decide it just here in our little corner. We need to make this bigger. And so they actually set up sort of like a conference or a committee or a council in Jerusalem. And so they travel to uh, Jerusalem in order to do it. And it says here, um, they go up to Jerusalem, uh, verse three, the church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the brothers very glad. So they traveled this long way. Studies show it's about 250 miles and it took about a month. And so for all intents and purposes, this was like a campaign trail leading up to the conference, right? They go and they travel and they like plead their case. 
They're like, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem and we're discussing this, but I'm gonna tell you what the Holy Spirit's been doing in the lives of Gentiles. I'm gonna tell you what has been happening so that when we get there and we're talking about it, you understand the background here. And so they're going and they're pleading their case and they're doing it because it matters. They feel super strong that you don't need to be circumcised because God is moving in a different way. Continue with verse four. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. So what's happening here is basically like a trial, right? Like some people are coming forward and saying, this is what we think. And then the apostles and the elders discuss it. And then someone gives the other opinion and the apostles and the elders discuss it before they come up with the answer. Verse seven, after much discussion, Peter gets up and address them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Um, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? And so what he's talking about is he's saying, hey, like when Jesus came, we no longer have to follow these rituals and these way of life as a method of salvation. He's saying, I understand that this is a part of your heritage, but it's not going to save us. Jesus does that. And that's shown by what the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of these Gentiles. And so he's saying, if that's been proven, if we know that this doesn't save, and we know that because it didn't save you, it didn't save your ancestors, yes, it's an important part of who you are and how you met God and your story, but Jesus has come and said, no longer faith in me alone is the only thing that matters. So he gives this big speech and he ends it by saying, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Verse 12 says, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the the Gentiles through them. So it's like kind of this like mic drop moment, right? Like he comes in there and he gives his case and he says, this is what God is doing. And everybody who seemingly has a different opinion than he does is totally quiet. They're listening. And it's like crickets in there. And think about that for one second. Have you ever been talking to somebody and they're listening to you, but it feels like they're not listening? They're just like employing strategies to make you think they're listening, like they're nodding, or they're repeating things back to you. And you're like, that's wrong because you just repeated it wrong. And so you just, you know they're not listening. That's very different than when you captivate someone's attention and they are literally listening and they say nothing back. If you're really listening to someone, you don't have to employ strategies to make them think you're listening. It's just evident. And that's what's happening here. Paul and Barnabas got up, very brave, very brave, stood in front of people and said, hey, this is what we've seen God do. And these people who came into this meeting feeling hurt, defensive, angry, something happened and they began to listen. So 
so continue on. I can't remember what verse I told you to do next. I think 19. So they, they keep going, and then uh, James stands up, and he says, verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He's saying, like, look, it's already hard. Let's not bring something else on them. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual morality, and from the meat of strangled, of, oh yeah, strangled animals, and from blood. So those four things he listed there, that's actually a nod to the heritage of the Jewish Christians. Those are rites and rituals that they also would have followed in addition to circumcise. And so he's saying, hey, I hear you. I hear that these things are important. I also hear that part of the reason why you want the Gentiles to be circumcised is so that they know they're set apart. It's obviously had a spiritual benefit for you to have a permanent mark on your body, to have a different way of life. And so let's do this. What if the Gentiles, their way they do life, the way that they're set apart is by abstaining from these things? Not because it saves them, but because it's a reminder. And when we do that, you also can eat with them and can commune with them, and you don't have to worry about being made unclean. So that's what's happening there, is he's like giving a nod to them, right? He's saying, I hear you, I see you. What if we did this? Verse 22. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they chose Judas and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. And with them, they sent the following letters. So the Jewish Christians heard the arguments of both sides. They got together, they talked about it, they discussed it. And then they said, okay, you know what? Let's go back to Antioch and give them their answer and give, us, give them our answer. And when we do... Let's send a letter, but let's send two of our men as well. And this is what the letter said. The apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. Okay, let's pause for a second. This like makes me want to jump, scream, shout, and cry all at the same time. There's this group of people, and they like live their whole life. I'm totally going to cry now. What? Um, And they live their whole life believing something, saying, hey, this has to happen in order to be saved. And then this whole new group of people are coming to know Jesus and saying, the Holy Spirit's doing something different, and I don't think that's what has to happen to be saved. And they come into the meeting, closed fist, and they feel angry, and they feel defensive. They feel like someone's taking something from them. And they feel probably a little bit like they're being betrayed and being suffocated out. But they listen, and they see what the Holy Spirit's doing, and they decide, it's okay, you don't have to be circumcised. And so they send a letter, and they start the letter with an apology. They start the letter saying, hey, we're so sorry that these people on our behalf that we didn't tell could come and do that came to you during your church service and told you that you were not welcome. We are so sorry. Verse 25, so we all agreed to choose some men 
and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. They're like, we're putting our people where our mouth is, and we want you to know what we say we mean, and when we say we want to be in community with you, we mean it. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. I like, love that ending. Farewell. Um, and so the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people of Antioch read it, and they were glad for its encouraging message. Oh my gosh, can you imagine being in Antioch? You're sitting there, and you're like, okay, I'm a Gentile believer, and like in X amount of days, I guess two months from now, someone's going to come back and tell me either I'm not welcome, or I must be circumcised, and I'm going to have a choice to make. What am I going to do? And so you're sitting there like in agony for months, right? And so they get this letter back and they hear it and it says they're very, uh, they were glad for its encouraging message. Yes, that's an understatement of the century. Someone just told you you didn't have to be circumcised to belong. Hello, hallelujah. (laughs) Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen their brothers. So Judas and Silas came, right? They said, hey, we're here. And then they spent time in this new community showing, hey, what was said about you wasn't true. You are as much a part of this thing as we are. You belong here just as you are. And we're gonna sit and we're gonna show you and we're gonna encourage each other and we're gonna be with you. So like, what happened here? You got two groups of people who disagree on on an issue of salvation and they worked it out like actual human beings. And what's scary is that feels like a miracle, right? But here's how they did it. They met face-to-face with each other. They acknowledged the other person's viewpoint. They had empathy for each other. And they each gave a little bit. Ultimately, what happened is they said, hey, the Gentiles will follow these purity laws. And the Jewish Christians said, okay, they don't have to be circumcised. But what they did there was they put aside their own sense of this is what has to happen to be saved. And they looked at what the Holy Spirit was doing and what God was doing and said, no, that's more important. They made a decision based on the future of the church to move the needle of the kingdom to a wider and bigger group of people. Because they knew that if they didn't, if they settled on, nope, it's a matter of salvation, and you have to be circumcised, that would be a slow death to the number of Gentiles that were gonna come in and agree to that, right? And so they said, you know what, no. We see that God is moving in a different way. We're gonna keep this as a part of our people and who we are, but we're willing to recognize that it's not an issue of salvation. And we want more people. We want new people. We want different people to know Jesus. Not what we want, but what he wants. And then, on top of that, they send a letter, 
right? They apologize and they say, hey, you're welcome here. And then they send people to prove their point. You're welcome here. I mean, this is how it's done, right? This is how it's done. This is how it should be done. We talk to people. We don't make decisions alone on the internet. We talk. We look for people that have a different viewpoint than us and we hear them. Doesn't mean you have to agree all the time, but you sure do try. And I don't mean you read an article from Fox and normally read it from CNN. I mean you have people over for dinner and you welcome them into your home and then if your mind has changed, you're humble enough to apologize. And this isn't any shame, right? These Jewish Christians, this is just what they knew. This is just how they were always taught. And then when they learned differently, they came and they said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you were troubled. I'm so sorry that this hurt you. And the Gentiles, they didn't hold it against him. They didn't say, yeah, well, you should be. And so now you owe me. They all communicated and they all started gathering together. See, when we make important decisions and how we make the decisions maybe matters even more than what we, the decision we make. Because how we go about doing it shows Jesus to people that don't know him. And I want people, when I make a decision and how I make it, I want people to see that Jesus welcomes everyone in, that Jesus listens, that he talks, that he brings people into his home, that he travels to see people across LA County. He doesn't care about the traffic or how busy he is. This is important. This is a priority. I want people to see that Jesus. And so making decisions well and talking about these big issues well looks like this. It looks like getting to, get together with people that we don't agree with. It looks like being humble. It looks like putting our own self, the things that we want on the line and saying, gosh, could I be wrong? Doesn't mean that we always are, doesn't mean that we'll come to that conclusion, but that's what it looks like. It looks like human discourse, recognizing that there's humans with feelings sitting in front of us, putting ourselves in their shoes for just a second and saying, how would I feel if that were me, right? It doesn't look like just reading the news and then like writing something on Facebook, which I totally have been guilty of. And it also doesn't look like, like I have a problem when a bunch of just like, white evangelical men get together and make statements about like who's in and who's out and then just tweet it out. We don't need to do that. This isn't like kickball in middle school. Do you know what I mean? Like we are missing the point if we think that we can make these big, huge decisions in very small silos. Not only are we doing our brothers and sisters a disservice, but we're not showing a face of Jesus that says all are welcome and I hear you, and I see you, and your story matters. To that point, there will be some times that you will come to a decision that your brother and your sister in Christ don't agree with. Everything worked out in this Jerusalem council, but we'd be naive to think that everybody was okay with it, right? There were some that weren't. If you'll notice in verse 26, it says there, um, Barnabas and Paul were men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In some cases, they really did risk their actual life. But in some cases, it was they were risking their livelihood. 
their security, their friends, their relationships, to go out on a limb on behalf of the Gentiles and say they are welcome here, to know that they too could be excommunicated. Read with me in verse 36. They get home. Paul and Barnabas are like high-fiving, and they're like, this was awesome. And it says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark. Just call him one or the other. Like some of these things, I'm always like, this is so, doesn't make any sense, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them and they had not continued with them. So like there's this story and um, they wanted John or Mark to come along and he didn't do it. He deserted him. And so Paul's mad about that. So he doesn't want him on this mission. He's like, no, he's going to like bail out on us. And so it says in verse 39, they had a sharp disagreement. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark. And Paul chose Silas, and they left, and they each went about their business. And so in the words of Kenny Rogers, we have to be wise people. We have to know when to fold them. I just want to say that. There are some times where the juice ain't worth the squeeze. Okay? There are some times where you are going to become to a conviction, and your brother and sister is not. And there is a place for healthy discourse, and there is a place for healthy disagreement, and there are sometimes that you can live in the same house and disagree with somebody, and you're fine, because ultimately you're sharpening one another and encouraging one another. But then there is a time and a place where you get so wrapped up in arguing with each other that you're missing out on the bigger picture. And so what happened here in Paul and Barnabas, they're arguing back and forth. And then finally, they were like, you know what? We're wasting our time. We have stuff to do. We have the good news to spread. We have Gentiles to meet who need to know Jesus. So let's part ways. And it's okay to part ways. It's okay. Sometimes it's not worth it to duke it out over and over and over and over and over again. Sometimes it's okay to part ways to go about your business and see what God has in store for that relationship down the road. Always hope for reconciliation. Always be open to forgiveness and reconciliation. But don't let it being right get in the way of teaching other people about Jesus. So how are we doing with all this? How are our um, discussions who are we talking to about big issues? And maybe more importantly, who aren't we talking to? Who is in right now and who is out? And what decisions are we making to keep others out, but for no reason besides the fact that it's just an inherited belief that we don't really understand why we believe it. My 20s were all about just saying what I believed and then my 30s have been about going through those inherited beliefs and figuring out what I still believe. Some of them have changed, and some have stayed the same, but at least I know. And so sometimes we're holding something dear because we've inherited it, and maybe it's time we pause and we look at those things, and we invite other people's perspectives into the conversations. And some of us don't know where to start. I think a good rule of thumb to ask who is being in, who's being told they're in, and who's being told they're out right now is, um, this is kind of my barometer I like to look at, is who 
is society oppressing and who is religion ignoring? Most of the time, it's the same people. Most of the time, the people who feel marginalized or oppressed in society are coming forward and you hear their voices saying, hey, listen, hey, me too. Or they're saying, listen to what my experience is. I feel oppressed by societal structures at large. But it also, those are the same people you'll hear all over the news, all over your social media, you hear people talking about. And then you come to church and you don't hear about any of it. And religion's just kind of acting like maybe they'll go away. They're not going to go away and they shouldn't go away because Jesus wouldn't let them go away. He would chase after every single one of them. And so that's maybe where we can start. That's maybe where we can ask the question, who is being left out? Who can I talk to? But I think another good place to start is let's be committed to being the type of people that reserve tough, hard conversations, be about what it is that we choose, but also about how we choose it. That if someone were to look at the way we're handling ourselves, the way we're conducting things, the way we're inviting people in, the way we're living, the way we're loving, the way we're experiencing relationships, that even if they disagreed, they would see a picture of Jesus that was welcoming and open. So I think as a community, we can start there. We can do our table fellowships and we can go out into our families and we can go out into our workplaces and we can start there. You want, we want to build a revolution. We want to make a big deal. We want to make a big difference for Jesus and it starts at our dinner tables and at our workplaces. So let's be committed to being people that conduct ourselves well in these types of situations. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Um, Thank you for the way that you provide examples of reconciliation, examples of humanity coming together in your name for good. Thank you that you have no shame if we've ever done anything to uh, marginalize people, that there isn't shame there, Jesus, that there's just forgiveness and love. And thank you that if we have been marginalized, that we can have the same forgiveness and love. God, I ask that in these coming weeks, in this sort of polarized, heated environment of today's world, that you would put it on our hearts to be wise about how we talk, about who we talk to, about the venues we hold these conversations, that we would be open where we need to be, and that your spirit would continually show the work that you're doing, just as it did with the Gentiles. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Vox, um, for welcoming in and being a safe place to belong for me and for coming. Um, I'm just going to say a blessing over you for, from Joshua, the book of Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will go with you wherever you go. Amen. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.